Well, that song, The Bad Days, by local artist David Ramirez is a reminder that even long-lasting relationships have their highs and their lows, maybe especially, right? Well, I discovered recently that the average wedding in America costs $20,000. I have a daughter. This is concerning to me. (laughs) I also discovered that the average divorce costs $20,000. And I wonder if you take those together, that's the cost of a, le- of a Tesla. And what if, what if I were to tell you that I've realized that to find happiness in life, I need a Tesla. Because those cars never break down, you don't have to fill them up with gas, you don't have to maintain them. You drive one and experience driving ecstasy. A Tesla will take away all your problems. So I buy the Tesla, And you find out two years later that I had left it abandoned on the side of the road. And you came up to me and were asking, what what happened? And I were to tell you, well, you don't understand. It's nothing like what I expected. I had to keep charging it, like all the time. (laughs) And then I had to take it to get an oil change. The check engine light kept coming on. And then it got dinged up. I didn't even do it. And then birds kept pooping on it. And eventually... It stopped working, so I just left it on the side of the road. And you looked at me, and you're crazy. What are you doing? Don't worry, I tell you. I'm going to get another car. Because $40,000 investment, right? It's just easy to replace it with another. See, that's how society treats marriage. We have these unbelievably unrealistic expectations, We're not prepared to work at marriage. And then when we get stuck, we're unwilling to go to a professional, an an expert to get help. And we leave this $40,000 investment on the side of the road. And really, it's, it's far more than that. So what if we could become the kind of people who had healthy, long lasting relationships? And certainly we're talking in the context of marriage, but But this is for every one of us, whether you're single or married. How do we become the kind of person that has healthy relationships that last at work, with friends, with extended family? How do we have the kind of relationships that last? And for this series, we're looking at the five relationship killers. See, if these five things are true in your relationship, it makes it hard to survive. And if you've missed any from the last few weeks, you can go back and listen to them But we're using this prepare and enrich assessment. Three million couples have taken this from different cultures, different ethnicities. And the results of this assessment and the surveys they've taken have been really insightful. And so today we're talking about commitment. The lack of commitment can be a relationship killer. Listen to this statistic from prepare and enrich. In 95% of vitalized couples, that's the healthiest couples, they scored high in commitment And not a single vitalized couple scored in the low range when it comes to commitment. Commitment turns out to be a great predictor of healthy, happy, lasting marriages. And a lack of commitment increases the chance of killing a relationship. Now, I realize that for some of us, commitment is the C word. It's like a bad word. And for good reason. We live in a culture that fears commitment and distrusts commitment. Why is that? Why are so many of us struggling to 
make commitments. Well, ever try to throw a big party and require an RSVP? Like a 20-year event that's in Cedar Park? And I know that for some of you, San Antonio is closer than Cedar Park. But I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss this. And some of you are like, yeah, but something else might come up. Nothing can come up that will be better. I promise you, it's going to be great. But there's something in us that we just, we have this desire to kind of keep our options open. See, a sure way to miss a loving, lifelong relationship and kill a good relationship is with a lack of commitment. Now, we live in a me-first kind of culture that doesn't know how to commit. And Michael Warden, some of you know Michael, he was here for years, and he's a, a coach for executives and a friend of mine, and he was describing why in our culture commitment's so difficult. He says this, our experience is growing up, rampant divorce, government betrayal, the death of corporate loyalty, showed us a painful personal way, the insubstantial nature of commitment and the consequences of trusting which include disappointment, disillusionment, distrust, severed relationships, shattered families. With that kind of history, why would we trust in the value of commitment now as adults? See, some of us grew up in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and did you know that divorce increased 300% in the 70s and 80s? See, the truth is many of us grew up with a lot of pain caused by broken commitment. We saw the pain of divorce in the eyes of our mother or father. Or maybe you witnessed a marriage where they stayed together and they, everybody kind of wished they hadn't. There was a lot of selfishness and self-centeredness and maybe they just were too old to move on. And, and we see that and don't want that in our life. I heard recently somebody said, I hope they were joking, they said, I don't date because I consider that the first step towards divorce. <laughs> but see, this doesn't apply to just singles, this unwillingness to commit. See, there are many of us who are married and we haven't really fully committed. God's desire for all of us is to have lifelong friendships, long-term marriages, and it's not too late to learn how in spite of the culture. Hey, let's talk about marriage for a moment. See, if we understood God's intent, it might help us reframe from what the world tells us. See, marriage was actually God's idea. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 19. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, there's this spiritual mystery that takes place when a couple is married. They, they become one. And understanding what it means to become one is important. It's not like this episode of X-Files where this couple was kissing and an alien flies over and their bodies melded and they were stuck at the lips forever. It's not like that. I hope that was a good kiss because it's going to last, right? No, two becoming one. It's, it's this mystery because you still remain two separate people, two separate minds, two separate longings and desires, two separate bodies, and yet there's something spiritual that happens. God joins us together. And certainly it's consummated in the act of physical intimacy, which is just physically demonstrating what should be true in your heart. 
That suddenly when you're committed in marriage that, that their thoughts are just as important as your thoughts. Their emotions are just as important as your emotions. Their desires are just as important as your desires. See, God gives us a, a mental picture in the scriptures. Ephesians 2. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. See, the oneness commitment of marriage is, is sacred because it's meant to reflect God's commitment to us. And what happens in this mysterious joining of two people, in, in essence, it's almost like the two become one entity. It's almost like your marriage has a soul. It begins a life of its own. And we sort of have an example of this in pop culture even. Brangelina, right? They, two becoming one Brad and Angelina were, were Brangelina. But I don't think they're together anymore, so maybe that's a bad example. Uh, uh, now I think he's back with Jennifer Aniston, I, I think. I was at the grocery store yesterday. I can't confirm it. <laughs> so now, now it's Benifer, right? Brad and Jennifer. Actually, I think that was Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. They're still together, right? Okay, maybe this is a terrible example. But in essence, there's this idea that together you become one entity, even though you are distinct and unique, but together your marriage, it's almost like your marriage has a soul. Now, what if you were to have a child and you bring that little baby home from the hospital and you say in the sweetest of ways, welcome home, Junior. Mi casa es su casa. And this is your crib. Here are your diapers. Make sure you change them when they get dirty. Over there is the refrigerator. If you need anything, help yourself. And in fact, I need to tell you, there's one other thing. Wednesday night is survivor night. Mom and I will be busy, but make yourself at home. Now, if you were to do that, your child would not survive. And by the way, you'd end up in jail. So don't do that. And yet, for some reason, we think that, that marriage in its infancy is not just as fragile that we actually have to take care and nurture and nourish this, this new relationship. See, without sacrificial commitment, that baby's not gonna survive, but that marriage is not gonna survive either. A marriage won't survive without full commitment to grow and to maintain that new life. Our marriage needs attention to survive. And even being married almost 25 years, I can tell you, you never ever should stop dating and investing in your marriage. But here's the good news. It's not just up the, to the two of you. See, God was always supposed to be part of the equation. God is desiring to be in the middle of your marriage to help you not just do the spiritual mystery of making you one, but helping you learn to trust and learn to communicate and learn to unconditionally love each other just as he unconditionally loves us. First John 3 says it this way. We know what real love is because Christ gave up his life for us, and so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. See, deep inside, we want relationships that exhibit God-like kind of love, a love that knows us fully, a love that believes the best and hopes for the future, a love that can change and grow with time, a love that's unselfish, thinking of the other first. That's the kind of love that God has for us and the kind of love that we can learn to extend to our friends, to our extended families, to our coworkers, and even to our spouse. But here's the catch. 
See, our culture is wounded. We've been traumatized by divorce and broken relationships. And so as a result, we've actually believed this, this trick. See, most of our culture, in fact, 65% of all teenagers and young adults think that it's a good idea to actually live together before marriage. That actually, let's not make the commitment, but let's live like we're married and kind of try it out. It's like a really long audition or super long job interview. See, if you're interested in marriage relationship that lasts, actually one of the worst things you can do is live together without a commitment first. Now, I know many of us in this room might be living together or have lived together in the past, and I want you to know that as a part of the teaching team, as we were working on this, it's important that you understand our heart. We're sharing this because we care about you. And it's never too late to reset, to restart. This not coming from a place of judgment or condemnation. I want you to succeed. And whether you live together or already living together or single and thinking of one day getting married, wherever you may be, I just want you to, maybe, maybe you struggle to understand why the scriptures would talk like this, but let me give you something from a university called Rutgers. All right, so secular source that, that describes why living together is actually not the best idea. Rutgers University did this extensive research and they came to their conclusions. It says this, virtually all research on the topic has determined that the chances of divorce ending a marriage preceded by cohabitation are significantly greater than for a marriage not preceded by cohabitation. Big words, because it's a college, right? <laughs> Here, here's another one. They said no positive contribution of cohabitation to marriage has ever been found. This is a secular university. And some of you are like, yeah, but it's Rutgers, right? They're on the East Coast. You can't trust the East Coast. Well, let me try something else. How about psychology today? Psychology today, they said this, living with your partner before tying the knot may help you pay the rent, but it could cost you the relationship, new research suggests. So why is this? Why could this be? I think it's because you're not training yourself for oneness to be that committed person, See, God's love is a committed love, an unconditional love, which means there are no conditions. And so when you're acting as if you're married without the one thing that's most needed, unconditional love and commitment to never leave or forsake, you can see how this begins to undermine your relationship. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but everybody's doing it. Yeah, but everybody's getting divorced. So maybe we should rethink just doing things because that's the way everyone is living their life. Now, maybe you've heard that 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's a bit misleading because actually 40% of first marriages end in divorce. That's still not that good. But once you include a second marriage or third marriage, it starts to make it closer to 50%. But 75% of marriages end in divorce if they live together beforehand. So what should we do? in a world that's scared to commit, that encourages us to live together. Well, one thing you can do is go read uh, this study from Rutgers. It's called, Should We Live Together Before Marriage? And then if you are already living together, I wanna just read a verse to you. And this is a verse that I often read to couples who come to me for premarital counseling. And it's a verse that might surprise you. Even married folks, single folks, this might surprise you. God's view of marriage. And specifically, physical intimacy in marriage. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Listen to what it says. Do not deprive each other 
from physical intimacy, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well, many times couples are excited about this. Oh, wow, God is all for physical intimacy and for it happening often. They like that part. But the second part of the verse is the harder part. There are times in your marriage, and perhaps if you're living together, this is the encouragement I give couples that come to me, there are times to actually fast from being intimate, to actually take a break, to push pause so that you can develop the skills of communication, of conflict resolution. See, when you're physically bonded, it actually masks some of the issues that are actually underneath, underlying your relationship. And if you missed the last three weeks of this series, let me encourage you to go. You can listen to them, read the notes on ericbryant.org, my website, because we talked about how flexibility is key and how learning to communicate is important and how having an other-centered kind of love is critical. But, but in the midst of that, commitment is key. Now, in the midst of some of these conversations, I had one couple come to me for premarital counseling, and I shared with them this idea of fasting from physical intimacy, even though they were living together at the time. And I remember them looking at each other thinking, why did we come to him so soon? Because <laughs> their wedding was 13 months later. And, and in the midst of that, they both prayed about it and they came back and they told me, but we've decided we're going to fast, just as you said. And I said, well, hey, you could move the wedding up. And they're like, no, we've got the perfect venue. It's out in Dripping Springs. You know, Dripping Springs was worth 13 month wait for them, right? And so in the midst of that, as I've had this conversation over and over and over again, I have never had a couple come to me later regretting taking this break. Every single time, a couple who's talked to me about their experience has thanked me for encouraging them to fast, that it helped them really grow to communicate. It helped them grow spiritually and in every way. Now, some of you are here and you're thinking, well, we're already married and we live together. And you're thinking, now I know why we've had so much trouble. Before you start going down that road, it, I want you not to fret. Starting on the wrong foot does not doom your marriage. In fact, I want to encourage you, no matter where you might be in your marriage, healthy, tough, maybe the divorce word has been thrown around, maybe the idea of separation has been considered, wherever you're at, I want you to just pause and consider God can do something significant and miraculous that you cannot even imagine. But you have to move to the place where you're investing in that relationship, being more intentional on working on your marriage. One of the best things I've seen people do is start serving others with others together, start serving together, start connecting in, in a class or a life group. Right? We have recovery starting on Wednesday night. Now, this Wednesday night, we also have one in Central Austin too, but the one on Wednesday night, the women's 12-step group has already filled up. But if you're here and you wanna be a part of it, still come because in the open share group, you can do it in a more, uh, uh, with a sponsor, kind of one-on-one -on -one and still work through the step. Men, there's still some spots left, but it will fill up quickly. Or, or maybe you wanna go through recovery and, and you wanna find a counselor. We can help you do that. Or perhaps you want to be a part of the marriage workshop that's coming up. It's on a Saturday. And that afternoon would be a great way to invest. Maybe all of the above. 
Invest in your marriage. You'll get out of that relationship whatever you put into it. So whether single, living together, or married, work on a lasting foundation in your relationships. There's a, a book that came out by Chip Ingram. It's called Love, Sex, and Lasting Relationships. And he compares Hollywood's idea of relationships versus God's ideal. And tell me if this doesn't sound like every romantic comedy you've ever watched, right? First, find the right person. Second, fall in love. And we talked about that last week, that, that really romantic love is, is something that only lasts two years. It's a, it's a feeling, but this is more of a choice, but we'll get to that. Fall in love. And then three, fix all your hopes and dreams on that one person. And then four, if that doesn't work, then repeat steps one, two, and three. See, what happens is when we live according to what the world tells us is right, then we actually flip things into the wrong order. We start with the physical as the foundation. Are they attractive? Did, did fireworks go off when I first saw them or not? Right? It's all about sex appeal. And then we move towards the emotional connection, that infatuation phase. But the problem is that is we're deeply in love and then we're incredibly angry and we're not sure if we ever want to talk to them again. There's these mood swings and we make up and then we break up and then we make up and then we break up. But then we move to the next phase, the social phase. And in the social phase, we begin to meet the extended family and friends. And in that phase, we either find warm approval or dire warnings. And if we're already physically and emotionally interconnected, then we don't listen to the dire warnings. And we move on to the next phase, which is the psychological phase. And what happens is we begin to see the flaws and the potential problems. They begin to surface because we're seeing the real person and then we panic. And so we move towards something that's more exclusive and more permanent. But then the good news is we go to a pastor for the spiritual phase. And if he's at our wedding, then he'll sprinkle pastor dust and it'll all work out in the end. I have no dust. (laughs) But here's the great news. It's never too late to learn how to have a committed and healthy relationship. Ephesians 5 says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. See, here's God's path for committed love. First, become the right person. Two, walk in love. And three, fix your hope on God and seek to please him through this relationship. Four, if failure occurs, repeat steps one, two, and three. Just as we've talked the last several weeks, it's about taking personal responsibility for the brokenness in your relationships. You cannot change the other person, but you can change how you respond to the other person. And as you begin to grow and as you begin to heal, they will want what they see in you. See, the the proper order is to build the foundation spiritually. Think first about what God wants for that person, not what you want. And then build on that, the psychological, getting to know that person and letting yourself be known. We often talk about the Enneagram and StrengthsFinder and love languages, just getting to know each other, learning how to trust and to be honest and committed to that person, which then moves to the social. By that point, you have such a, a healthy friendship that even meeting their extended family doesn't put you off. You're in a position where you want to keep moving forward, right? That was a joke, not a good one. But then after the social, then you add to that the emotional. That's when the feelings of love start to develop because it's based on reality. And then physical expression of love comes in the context of a commitment of marriage. 
Uh, years ago, somebody gave me advice. They said, similar to that, that little triangle, notice how small the physical part is of the relationship. They said, make sure you marry someone you love talking to because that's what you're going to do most of the time. Listen to what Hebrews says. The scriptures tell us this. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. Now, if you grew up in any sort of religious context, you probably heard that. But what you may not have heard is why that's important. See, God's heart for you and for me is he wants to protect us. He's actually wanting to help us have the kind of relationships that are actually fulfilling. This isn't a way to sabotage what we want in life. It's actually to experience the depths of what we long for. A relationship that lasts. See, too often we give up too easily. But we can work on our marriage with God's help. They did a study, and this one was out of Minnesota, and they asked, do you wish you and your ex-spouse had tried harder to work through your differences? 66%, two-thirds said yes. We gave up too soon. See, what I want you to hear more than anything else today is God loves you, and he wants to help you. He wants to heal you from your past. He wants to forgive you from your regrets. He wants to help you become the person that he created you to be, to meet those deepest longings that no other human being could ever possibly meet. See, too often we jump from job to job, from friend to friend, from church to church, from relationship to relationship, looking for others to meet the needs that only God can meet. Our goal in life should not be happiness according to the world standards. Our goal in life is to experience God's love and extend that love to those around us, to love God and to love people. I just want to walk you through five ways that we can grow in our commitment to love others, even as we experience God's love for us. Listen to to God's love for you, but also consider how am I doing when it comes to this kind of love and how can I improve? The first is this, no fear of judgment. 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of judgment, and this shows that God's love has not been perfected in us. We love each other as a result of his loving us first. See, some of us have a wrong view of God. We see God as angry and judgmental, when in reality, God's love for you should cast out all fear. Question is, are you judgmental? See, people are not changed in the context of our judgments. They're changed and transformed in the context of love. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, have the humility to ask others to help you grow and overcome your blind spots so that you will be an example of what could happen in their life. See, but this kind of love, there's no need to be defensive because there's no fear of judgment. That's the kind of love that God has for us. Second, no fear of abandonment. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. See, what we need to understand about God's love for us is that he will never abandon us. Even though we've let him down and failed to perfectly live according to his will. But see, here's the catch. The same love that we experience from God, we need to extend to other people. See, God doesn't give up on us, but we give up on others way too soon. Perhaps you've given up on someone. I want you to consider, even today, what is the way that God might want you to reach out to that person? Perhaps have a heart-to-heart with that person. 
giving them the chance to make things right before you just move on. So often we have arguments in our head and assume the worst in others and never give them the opportunity to even say they're sorry and never take responsibility for our part. Next is no fear of rejection. This is the kind of love that God has for us. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. See, God takes us as is. God accepts us for who we are. People with flaws and blemishes and yet he sees us. He sees the potential of who we, have become, who we can become. I want you to realize and even imagine how beautiful, unconditional love for you is and how real it is. That's the kind of love that God has for us. He wants us to experience and extend to others. My daughter in about fourth or fifth grade was having trouble with her best friend and she came to me and was saying, I'm really frustrated. She keeps doing the same thing and it really hurts me. What should I do? And I said, well, you should forgive her. And she said, I keep forgiving her and she keeps doing it again and again and again. How many times do I have to forgive her? And I said, well, you know, Jesus was asked that very question. Do you remember what Jesus said? She said, yes, I know, I know, to infinity and beyond. <laughs> it's a different version, the Buzz Lightyear version of the scriptures. No, actually, the disciples said, should we forgive him seven times? Like, that's a noble thing. And he said, no, 70 times seven. See, what's interesting, if you're in any sort of relationship at work with extended family, friends, or your spouse, there are things about them that will annoy you and even hurt you, and they might keep doing them. It's like a bad habit. Sometimes they can't seem to stop. And we still have to forgive and forgive 70 times, seven times. Some of you are counting. All right, that's 490. Okay, we've only got 50 left, right? The point is a completeness. Never stop forgiving. But see, some of us have been hurt so badly in the past that every time we remember it, we have to forgive again. We're literally having to learn to forgive for the same painful moment. And again, if you're stuck in that counseling, recovery, those are things that can help you move past that. The final one is no fear of external threats. Romans 8 says it this way. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Death cannot and life cannot. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell cannot keep God's love away. See, this is God's love for you. Real love breeds security. It's a committed love that lets nothing come between us and the other person. That's God's love for you. That's real love. Wherever your relationships are right now, I want you to know you can experience God's love and allow his love to flow through you, bubble over your heart and into the lives of those around you. There is always hope. And I, I want you just for a moment to to consider God's love for you is real. No matter what decisions you've made, no matter what regrets you might have, no matter what thoughts you might have, no matter what you might fear, God's love for you is real. And his love means no fearing judgment. It means not fearing abandonment or rejection or external threats. God's love for you is real and you can start afresh today in your relationships and how you respond to the things that are happening around you. He can help you forgive. He can help you find healing. So in this moment, these two are going to 
lead us in a song of reflection. It's not a song to sing out. It's a song to listen to. It's a song about reconnecting to God, allowing God to be the one that helps guide you through the pain you might be experiencing in losing someone. The pain you might be experiencing of being in what feels like a perpetually difficult situation. When we surrender that person, that pain to God and allow him to heal us, then we can better respond to the relationships around us. So in this moment, connect your heart with God. Allow him to show you the next steps you need to take.